a lot of the failure points whenever engineers or engineering leaders want to step up that game is hesitation or fear because I think there is this stereotype that engineers are just coding they can talk only with computers but not with people and a lot of engineers actually believe that so they are hesitant to talk to people outside of their team their company so I think not wanting to try all of those and then holding back yourself from speaking with non-engineers years are some of the failure points that I see. The other one is thinking with only engineering lens. A lot of engineers mostly think in systems in algorithms, but not everything in business and in product is about systems. Sometimes it's all about people understanding their emotion, their cultural background, and how society works. And that's something that's very hard to be caught in. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you a business owner, CFO, or engineering lead who's tired of grappling with outdated finance processes? Are you frustrated at the high costs of card payments or find yourself bogged down by manual financial tasks? It's time for a change. Meet Acme Technology. Our software enables you to connect directly with your bank of choice to automate all of your finance and payments processes. Enjoy real-time reconciliation and direct-to-bank payments and payouts. No lengthy integration. Transform your banking experience into a Stripe-like experience, all with easy integration through streamlined APIs. Learn more at www.try. A-C-M-E.com. Hey, Arfan. Really excited to have you in the show. You're the co-founder with a good friend of mine, Ashwin, for Lumina. And you've obviously had a tremendous life story as well. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for inviting. Yeah, uh, Mox Hill has been a really great supporter of Lumina as well. Yeah, so I'm Irfan. Currently, I'm the co-founder and CTO of Lumina. So we are a company working in the intersection of employment and future of work. And we've been uh, launching Lumina as a job platform early last year. And now we have around 2 million workers using our platform. So before that, I work as an engineering leader at Kudangada. So it's a P2P company. Before that, I spent a couple of years as first engineer at another P2P company called Stoko. And that's where I met my founder Aspen as well, that you mentioned. Yeah, before that, I mostly do a lot of internships, both in Indonesia and in US. And I also do a lot of competitive programming since I was in high school throughout university as well. Awesome. So how did you decide to become an engineer in the first place? Were you always in love with engineering or was it something accidentally did? Yeah, I was introduced to computer pretty late, actually. So it was in my junior high school when I was around 12 or 13. So back then, I never touched computer my whole life. And then back then, I came from a very remote area where we don't have a computer. And then during junior high school, I moved into a bigger city. And that's in the school, you get taught how to use computer as well. And back then in 2007, there are a lot of internet cafes in Indonesia. So I was immediately drawn to 
computer and using internet. Yeah, I do a lot of in, you know, like trying out to build websites and a lot of those. So that's my first introduction to computer. And then my interest grew and into senior high school. I joined the computer Olympiad club in my school. And that's the first time I got introduced to uh, programming and algorithm. And back then, I didn't realize that it's going to be useful when I look for a job in Silicon Valley. But back then, I just like it to problem solve with algorithms and do a lot of problem solving. And I kept to win medals in competitions in Indonesia. And yeah, fr from there, I got offered to study in University of Indonesia. So I didn't need to take a test because I won a medal in the oh. computer science. <laughs> yeah, that's the stroke of luck that I get. Amazing. So when you were studying engineering, what were some specialties or what were you interested about? Yeah, back then in university, a lot of my competitive programming friends just stay to do competitive programming. So it's basically you get five hours to work on several problems and then you just aim for it. But for me back then, it's a bit hard to make money just from competitive programming because I need to fund my study by myself because uh, my parents didn't have enough money to give me my living costs in university. So I decided to do a lot of web development. So basically I became a software and website agency. So I look for clients who are looking to develop websites or trying to develop apps. So I built for them. So back then I mostly do web development and that's where I believe I was good at back then. And then when I was in my junior and senior year, I moved into backend and then did a lot of distributed systems as well. So you did your internship at Twitter. So how did you get that internship? Yeah, that's a very long story actually. <laughs> At UE, back then, a uh, lot of my peers are mostly interning in Indonesia. At UE, back then, it is mandatory for you to have an internship before you graduate. But a lot of my friends are just looking for internships in Indonesia. And as you can see, like Silicon Valley is the mecca of technology, right? So I was just curious on, can we as Indonesian students really get an internship there? So th there are several of my friends who are intrigued with that question as well. So we started looking for a lot of resources, like articles, videos, and a lot of materials, basically, on what is required to intern in Silicon Valley. So we learned that, okay, actually international students outside of the U.S. can intern there. And then you need to be really strong in algorithm and data structure because they will assess you at least like four to six interviews on algorithmic and data structure problem solving. And you need to have like previous experience before. And then your CV needs to be really strong. So yeah, a lot of this criteria uh, becomes my benchmark. Okay, in the next couple of years, I really want to apply to Silicon Valley companies and I need to master all of this as above. And fortunately, in terms of problem solving in algorithm and data structure, I already have a long head start for at least three, four years since high school. So it's a bit easy for me. But main hurdles was to apply and then how to make your CV really stand out among other candidates who are coming from much better universities like Stanford, MIT, or Harvard <laughs> because I came from a local university in Indo. And then how to do the interview as well in English because English is my third language, actually. Oh, yeah, third language. First language is Japanese. My second is Indonesian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was like a lot of preparation and hard work for me to uh, nail all of those things all the way until I can get more comfortable doing technical interviews under pressure. <laughs> yeah, and so you managed to get your interview. What was the interview like? Do you remember? Yeah, it was more intense than I expected, 
actually, I applied to a lot of Silicon Valley companies. Uh, most of them get rejected. I got like several companies uh, interviewing me. Usually they interviewed in several rounds at Twitter and other companies that applied. They have the first one screen interview with HR and then they have one phone interview, an engineer, more senior engineer at the company. So it's most, it's all problem solving with algorithm. So I have 45 minutes to quote the problem that the viewer gave me. And then that leads to the second technical interview. After I managed to nail those, they then send me to on-site interview, but because I'm in Indonesia, they do it remotely. So it's four back-to-back technical interview, basically. Because the time is an issue, then I need to do the interview at like 2 a.m. until 7 a.m. <laughs> what? Yeah, so, 2 a.m. to 7 a.m.? Yeah, so it's their daytime and it's my night time. Oh boy. And it was super anxious for me because I need to drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and my heartbeat's just like all over the place. You're already stressed with <laughs> the interview and now you have all this coffee in you. <laughs> so yeah, so there you are and you get the offer and then you start learning. So was it like a culture shock to be working in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, it was a lot of culture shock because uh, I've never been overseas before. And that's the first time I got my passport. Uh, that's wow. the first time I went into a flight on my own. And that's the first time I got to the US as well. And that's also the first time I work at a real tech company. So a uh, lot of things I need to unlearn and a lot of things I need to learn fast. Like, for example, Indonesians are typically more introverted and they are more shy, especially in communicating their opinion. But in the US, everybody just, they, they are able to say whatever they want. And whenever there's a discussion, it is expected for everybody to have an opinion and to really speak for it. Need a lot of uh, adjustment uh, from interpreted uh, personality and the culture, the Japanese culture that I grew up with to something that's more expected to be extroverted and you can say anything out loud. That's probably like one of the biggest culture shock for me. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you'd spend time not just as an intern, but also as an engineer at Twitter and you made a decision to leave America and work in Indonesia. So can you walk us through like, you know, a lot of folks who have chosen to stay in America. So what was your thinking? When I was in the US, so I interacted with her twice, one in my sophomore year, second in my junior year. And I actually have another opportunity to intern again, but my parents back then didn't allow me because I have already missed eight holidays. <laughs> and that's very important for a Muslim family in Indonesia. So they asked me to uh, stay for my next summer. But then again, I, I still have a lot of options to choose, especially if I want to go full time in the US. But back then, I I was exposed to the entrepreneurship scene in the Bay Area. And that's something that I feel is enlightening for me because, okay, you, you can work as an engineer at all of the big companies, but a lot of the innovation and a lot of the big companies are actually start from very small, right? They start in uh, the founder's parent basement or they start in the founder's garage. And I get to see a lot of the energy as well in entrepreneurship. Almost every weekend, I went to conferences. I participated in hackathons where we just hack things up for the whole weekend. So I had a little like that energy of making something new and then launching it and then getting users and getting feedback. So from that point in time, I always see myself that, okay, I need to be an entrepreneur someday. I need to build product my own because I like building stuff more and I like working in a small team compared to working with hundreds or thousands of other engineers. 
So that decision to be an entrepreneur someday is actually what leads me to go back to Indonesia and learn from actual entrepreneurs, which is Aswin and Aki back then. So I feel that I will have more chance to succeed if I live where I want to build my company. Because back then I want to build my company out of Indonesia. So I need to network with other people here for hiring, for fundraising, for partnering. And then I need to have the skills of actually running a company. So I learned a lot during my time at Stockholm to how to build an MVP, how to hire the first few people. So I think in retrospect, all of the decision makes sense for me as opposed to just having the easier life of getting a good salary at back. <laughs> yeah. I think what's interesting is that you also made a decision not just to go back to Indonesia, but also choose to be like a founding kind of engineer with startups. So what was your perspective? What did you have to learn about being an engineer leader in startups? Yeah, when I go back to Indonesia, actually, I was conflicted between starting on my own right away or joining another startup who are at a very early stage that I can learn a lot of things, but I don't need to take a lot of risks. Back then, I decided to join Stockholm because I do like working with the founders. I do like their mission. And I feel that I didn't have a lot of experience yet to build a company. So yeah, I just worked with Aswin and Anki in the engineering team. I learned a lot uh, there because I was the first engineer. And during the first year of the company, I was actually like the only engineer aside from the CTO. So I get to see a lot of products being built from scratch. And then when the product actually get traction and then the customer base grew, we need to build even more uh, products. And that's how I learned to do hiring as well. So a lot of my time at Stoko are spent in building products and then like uh, managing the engineers and hiring and growing the team. So that's a lot of my learning uh, at Stoko. Yeah. And what's interesting is that you also went to Y Combinator as well. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I actually was a fan of Y Combinator. <laughs> even from my college days, uh, especially when I was in the US, I see that Y Combinator is like the breeding ground for a lot of great stuff like Stripe, Airbnb, Dropbox, and a lot of strong startups are coming out of Y Combinator. So even when I was at Stoko, uh, I was with Y Combinator. Whenever there is any events or programs from Y Combinator, I always attend, <laughs> especially if I can. The first time I get to Y Combinator is actually in 2019. Back then, I started a side project. So it's a career preparation platform. That's the first time I applied to Y Combinator. We get shortlisted to do the final interview on site, but we didn't get it. And then things happened during COVID. So we just paused that project. And then after Soko closed down, I get with Aswin and hey, I think both of us still want to build startup. So we decided to team up. And the first thing that comes to our mind was, hey, after all this time, we haven't get the experience of Y Combinator, which is how to build a real technological product that can be global. So that's our reasoning between Y Combinator. And when I joined Y Combinator, it's still in COVID. So all of the sessions are still happening remotely. So we decided to, it's okay, we still apply. And during the program, the three months of the program, there are a lot of sessions and calls, office hours and the demo day. All of them happen like 12, 1 a.m. until 4, 5 a.m. I check out the time. I think it was worth for asking because in Singapore. But those three months was super intense that we make a lot of progress that we thought, okay, even if this is a win for YC, then we wouldn't get the progress that we could have hoped 
for because it's so intense. <laughs> and when you say it's intense, how was it intense? Yeah, one is because the all of the late night sessions because it's still all remote and then we are journeying from the other side of the globe. So that adds to the intensity. So you have a work all the way from morning to the evening and then from the evening till morning you need to join all of the YC sessions. <laughs> That's one. The second is how they manage to crunch all of the curriculum and all of the sessions into just three months. So basically you join the batch in January and in late March you will have the demo day. So it's only three months to get a lot of uh, results so that your startup can fundraise well during demo day. And wow, that's only three months and a lot of things can change. And we haven't released our main product yet. Then. So we need to release our product and then we need to get all of the traction so that we can fundraise well during demo day. So that's a lot of pressure. And we need to have the office hour with our YC partners as well, who always push us and encourage us to get the result that we want for demo day. And when you think about that demo day, how did you feel? Were you also nervous the same way you did at Twitter interview? I'm not the one who is presenting. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have uh, multiple co-founders, only one founder should be able to do the demo day and the demo day was in front of 2,000, 3,000 people, most of them investors or angels from all over the world. And you need to present in only one minute to get all of your message and selling point across to all of those investors. And man, that's like probably <laughs> the most powerful 60 seconds in my life. <laughs> yeah, so I was like praying so that Aspen can be smooth in during that 60 Second yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, 60 seconds, you can probably make it a TikTok, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that can influence whether you can raise or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, obviously, you've also like built multiple companies along the way. So we had Udang, Ada, then Stocko, then Lumina. So, what are some of the lessons that you've learned from being and building engineering teams and the product? Yeah. I, I learned a lot in the past six, seven years of building all of these products and helping to build the companies as well. I think as an engineer, a lot of my peers and me are taught all of the principles in software engineering, like how to build scalable system, how to write clean code, but we are not taught in how our program or our product can influence the business results. Because at the end of the day, when we are working at the company, we need to pursue the business objectives, right? A lot of my friends forgot about those. So they tend to just focus on engineering, focus on getting the system scalable was on making sure that the system are shiny, scalable, sensible, and all of those things. Then they forgot that all of those things need investment. That investment can be put into helping the business team think about what we're Will what kind of technology can actually help to take more users, get users. So all of my experience, I think boils down to as an engineer or an engineering leader, you need to be really aware and you need to know a lot about business so that you as the person who actually built the product can actually help the business to reach its objectives. Especially in Southeast Asia where the product are mostly business or offline or like offline transactions that digitize. So I think a lot of the engineers and engineering leaders in Indonesia can can be more helpful if they know a lot more about business. Okay. What should they know more about business from your perspective? Yeah, I think one is data. So when I was in Stoko in Gudangada and now in Lumina, I always take a look at the data. So whenever we want to launch something or whenever I want to release 
even like a technical feature, I always compare whether the data before and after actually matters. So if I release something and then it doesn't impact the metrics that I want to impact, then your product is not doing what it's supposed to do. That's one. Second is managing stakeholders. I think a lot of product managers might already know about this, but engineers usually just leave the stakeholder management to their product managers. I think that's a bit scary for me because as an engineering leader, you need to know how to communicate with your stakeholders. You need to get a lot of information from them. You need to empathize and really know what's their objective. And third one is probably talking to users. So at Stoko, we have a culture where during the first week of onboarding, every new hire, including the engineers and product managers, we are asked to meet with our customer uh, for the whole day. So they go with the salesman uh, for the whole day to visit our customers. And then they need to go with our drivers as well for overnight deliveries. And they need to stay uh, overnight at the warehouse as well. I think that's super useful because your customers and you really know firsthand, okay, this is my customer. This is how they think. This is their objectives. So when you are building products uh, for them, you can actually make more informed decisions. So I think that's the three, what data, stakeholder management, and getting to know your customers. Yeah. As we think about all of that, what do you think are mistakes that you think engineering leaders can face or make? Uh, a lot of the failure points whenever engineers or engineering leaders want to step up that game is, I think it's only hesitation or fear because I think there is this stereotype that engineers are just coding. They can talk only with computers, but not with people. And a lot of engineers actually believe that. So they are hesitant to talk to people outside of their team, outside of their company. So I think not wanting to try all of those and then holding back yourself to from speaking with uh, non-engineers are some of the failure points that I see. The other one is thinking with only engineering lens. Uh, a lot of engineers mostly think in systems, right? Uh, they think in algorithms, but not everything in business and in product is about systems. Sometimes it's all about people that requires understanding their emotion, their cultural background, and how society works. And that's something that's very hard to be caught in. And when you think about all of that, what has been something surprising that you learned about yourself or about engineering leadership over this journey? Initially, when I started talking to users, drivers, blue-collar workers, I thought that they will be, the users will be annoyed with me coming over there because who is this IT guy <laughs> trying to talk to me all the time? But surprisingly, they receive it with a lot of because uh, sometimes even whenever they have issues with the app, it takes very long to resolve because they need to go through the CX department, the CX department to go through product ops or the product management team until it can get to the engineer's eyes to be debugged and resolved. When we met with all of those users and stakeholders, they can talk firsthand with the guy who built it and they realize that, wow, why haven't anybody come to me before because it's so useful for them to just flesh out all of their problems that they have with the systems and the programs to the care building it. And I think it shortcuts a lot of things. 
Mm. So I think that's something that a lot of stakeholders really appreciate. Yeah. Could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? I think that the bravest uh, moment in my life uh, probably just happened a couple of years back when I decided to stop at the beginning of the downturn during COVID. <laughs> so back then, I was becoming more comfortable as an engineering leader. I have a pretty good position at the company. I have already made relationships with my team with my peers at the company and everything is going really well. I have a career path as well. But there's always an itch in my mind that, okay, I really want to build a company someday. But at the time, I was not sure as well because it's still COVID and there might be a downturn coming. But then I realized I can stay a couple more years to wait out and then gain more experience. But I realized that I've been doing that already for the past five years. So I decided to just jam in knowing what the overly challenge involved. Amazing. When you think about all of that, how do you think about risk? How do you try to avoid risk? Do you think you'd assess risk? How do you think about risk in general? Coming from someone who grew up very poor and don't have anything to lose, I tend to be very because the downsides for me are pretty minimal. So, I mean, I still have some money and then I can still live peacefully. I can still buy food to eat. I can still pay my rent. And that's a very low baseline for a lot of people. But for me, it's already sufficient. So it enabled me to take on a lot of risks that other people might not be able to. So traditionally, I'm always more risk-taking, especially that the downsides from my end is below. But the upside is big. Yeah. Then the only thing that matters is uh, the opportunity cost. Choosing one specific path versus the others. Uh, on that note, I just want to say thank you so much for coming to the show. I'd love to kind of like summarize the three big takeaways I got from the conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about your early journey about learning to be an engineering student and your first internship and how that was your first time ever flying but also your first time getting a passport. I guess the first time getting caffeinated and doing a 2am to 7am interview. Sounds like what a crazy set of moments but also like like you said it it's an inflection point for your whole career right? because you could have stayed in Indonesia and done a local internship and you'll probably have a very different career path because of that. So it's just amazing to see how some of this education but also serendipity has allowed you to uh, be who you are today. Secondly, thank you so much for sharing a lot more about from your perspective, the lessons for what engineering leaders and what you yourself as engineering leader have learned about business in terms of what to do, what not to do, how, how to talk to users and how to build products. So really interesting to see that. Lastly, thanks so much for sharing a little bit about your YC experience but also some of Thank these you. like small moments I really enjoyed hearing them about how excited you are to be a YC because you were at all the events but also I really laughed at the idea of again the 60 second presentation <laughs> one minute and how you're even more anxious because you're the one in the audience watching him and hoping that he doesn't <laughs> screw it up right and he succeeds well just want to say again congratulations because that 60 second pitch succeeded and it's awesome to see how far Lumina has grown over the past two years so on that note thank you so much Irfan for coming on the show Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, I hope it's useful for the audience. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.